So we're gonna we're gonna have a, a message this morning, um, and I'm just gonna call on David's wife. I mean, if you're gonna do that, well, <laughs> you got everything else happening. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, I was like, man, she's got a lot of work to do. She got she got to be everywhere at one time right now. Um, so we're picking up in the book of Acts. It's where we've been. Uh, Acts chapter 4 uh, is where we left off last week and it's where we're going to uh, dive back into today. And I'm going to tell you um, one of the, the healthy disciplines of a church, what makes a church, I believe one of the things that makes a church uh, healthy uh, is its commitment to the full counsel of God. Uh, a, a devotion to the full counsel of God. And the best way, I think, to be true uh, to this commitment is to preach through books of the Bible as we're accustomed to doing. Um, primarily, this is our means for um, uh, living out this commitment uh, of, of being in the full counsel of God, uh, looking through Scripture. And so primarily we do that. Every now and then we'll take just a, a portion of Scripture uh, to, to deal with one topic or another, but primarily this is our means for doing this. And I'm pointing this out uh, especially today because um, I'm a coward by nature. Uh, just in my, in my nature, uh, I, I'm... I'm, I'm spineless. Um, and, and I just want to confess that because I have this propensity to, to maybe want to just kind of camp out in the script parts of Scripture that are uh, real easy to receive, real easy to teach, uh, real encouraging, uh, real challenging, the stuff that people like. I can talk a lot of stuff about what Jesus did that just we all really get jazzed about. And that's, that's kind of that's where I tend to want to go. Um, but by God's grace, we see his fullness by faithfully journeying through all of Scripture. And so it's kind of a discipline for us as, as leaders and pastors and teachers as well as we come up on Scripture that uh, may not be so popular. Uh, like I think one of them will probably be today. We'll land in a little spot today. That we're like, Man, this, this isn't my favorite verse to quote, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to be there. But I, I think that... that this is, this is the way we do this, is journeying through Scripture, getting a full picture of God, getting a full picture of the gospel. Um, all of God is what we want, um, and so that's why we do what we do. Um, I say all of that because, again, we're going to land in a place in the book of Acts today um, where, as we journey through here, and we're going to see uh, uh, two things, but one I really want to point out is the danger that threatens the unity of the church. And it's fitting that we land here. We're going to be doing communion today. Uh, we're going to wrap up our service. We're going to talk a little bit about communion and it has uh, everything to do with unity. Um, but what we see uh, is this danger that threatens the unity and the momentum of the church and it doesn't always come from the outside. It doesn't always come from uh, exterior forces that, that want to stop the movement of the church and wants to, to harm the, the message of Jesus, the good news, wants to turn it into bad news. It doesn't always come from the outside. It can come from the inside as well. Up to this point, we've seen accusations, right, of, of the church. I mean, early on in the book of Acts, we, when we opened up, we saw uh, where these accusations by these bystanders, they see the work of God, right? They see the Spirit of God come down on the church and, and the, the accusation is that, well, these are just a bunch of drunk people. Like, don't even take them serious. Right? That's, what, that's an external force that was coming against the movement of this church that they were trying to influence people into thinking that this wasn't something that God was doing. This wasn't, this was just a bunch of crazy drunk people acting out. That's what we saw at, at, at the day of Pentecost. We've seen uh, over the last two weeks, I guess, where priests and temple leaders, they get annoyed uh, because these Christians have healed a crippled man. Right? They, they're just like, they're just put out by the fact that this man who lay crippled in, in their face for years and years and years has now been healed. And not just, not just annoyed, but so furious that they had Peter and John thrown into jail because they attributed the healing, everything that happened, that miracle. They said, no, man, that's, that's the resurrected Jesus doing that. And man, when they said that, it just greatly annoyed these people to the point it threw them, that they threw them in jail for it. And so up until now, resistance has been coming from the outside. This church, this movement that started, that Jesus had, had left to start moving, it, it, it has seen resistance, it has seen opposition from the outside, but an even greater danger than outside resistance to the church is something that can spring up from the inside of the church. And, I, and I, I'm certain that many of you in this room, many of you in this room has, has either experienced or know of a circumstance or a situation where a movement of God was just flat out destroyed because of the 
interior struggles of the church. Things that have happened. Churches that have split off. Harmful things that were said to one another. Broken fellowship. All of those things. So I'm going to say that there's a, there's a much greater danger of, of opposition and resistance uh, to the church from the inside and not the outside. Especially in our context. Today we don't have outside forces looking for uh, reasons to stop what we're doing right now. Actively this morning, today, to this body. Now there are things happening in the world that, that are trying to slow this movement down. I will, I will give you that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are in a much greater danger of disunity and opposition and resistance from this group that I'm looking at. This is where we're in most danger. And so it's really important as we think about that. Our text today gives us this, this beautiful picture of God the Spirit working in and through the church to bring about unity and to bring about worship. And it, and it all demonstrates the kingdom. And I just want to, like, I want to... I want to show that we, show you here that we're going to see the danger that, that exists and how God responds to this danger that exists within the church. And this is the not-so-popular text that we'll land in today. So I want to remind you of this idea of the kingdom of God, right? This is what we've seen. Jesus, this was, he was always preaching the kingdom of God up, and through, up until we get into Acts and where we are now. It's just coming up over and over and over, this idea that, that King Jesus came into this world. He ushered in his kingdom of grace. He ushered in his kingdom of truth. Uh, and, and, and as he does so, he establishes his kingdom. We see this in the gospel. And, and, and now the church is the outpost of, these, of this kingdom. I, I love that whenever we were first casting vision to, to plant a church in this community, that was one of the things that we called church planting was just outpost of grace, right? Like there's a movement that's starting here and then we've set outposts of grace, outposts of God's kingdom in the world. And so that's what's going on. The church is serving as outposts to what Jesus had come and ushered in and that was the kingdom of God. And surrounding the kingdom of God are all these other kingdoms. All these other uh, 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 rules and, 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 and kingdoms that, 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 are, that are surrounding the, the outpost of the kingdom of God. And so the church, uh, the church is, is meant to show the world what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. It, it, it shows the world how to denounce the kingdom of self. Right? Me and mine. It, 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 the church is, is given to us. It's God's grace to show all the other kingdoms of self, of hypocrisy, of, of money, of pleasure. All these other kingdoms that those kingdoms and the kings that rule in those kingdoms are worthless. This is the kingdom of God. And it's full of grace and it's full of truth. And it's the place where you are meant to thrive. It's an environment of grace. And so that's what the kingdom of God is about. That's what the church is about. And so one important reality of any kingdom, including the kingdom of God, is how the economy works in that kingdom. No matter where you go in the world, no matter what kingdom or no, no matter what system that you, you identify with or have, have had experience with, they all have this economic system. A way that they, they do life. You belong to any kingdom. You, you have to know how the economy works in that kingdom. And so it is with the kingdom of God. If you belong to the kingdom of self, if you belong to the kingdom of, of pleasure, if you belong to the kingdom of money, the way you work and the way you spend, the way you consume, it's all a direct reflection of that kingdom. Right? That, that's how it goes. And so the same goes with those who belong to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom brings an economic structure that is directly reflective of King Jesus himself. And so what Luke wants us to see today is that, look, discipleship in, in the kingdom of God, uh, discipleship meaning like we're, we're ever growing into the likeness of Jesus. We're teaching one another to be more like Jesus and to learn about Jesus and learn what he commanded. Uh, this, this, the discipleship in this kingdom, it's going to engage your heart. It's going to engage my heart and it's going to affect the way we work. It's going to affect the way we spend. It's going to affect the way we consume. Because it's, we belong to this kingdom, and every kingdom has an economic system. Every kingdom has an economy. And so a look at Scripture, it's going to quickly teach us that, um, that money is incredibly powerful. 
It is incredibly powerful. Like, like money can, can do two things, and, and, and I'll say simultaneously. It's, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Money can shape your affections. It can shape your affections by the way you spend it, what you spend it on. And money, at the same time, can tell the world what your affections are based on how you spend it. And so it's very, very powerful. It will, it, Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's how powerful it is. And so it, it absolutely, it, it shapes our affections and then it, it proclaims to the world what our affections are. And so as we consider money, as we consider possessions in the kingdom of God, one thing to realize is that effective discipleship, effective uh, one-anothering, teaching one another uh, how to walk in this way of Jesus will not ask you to simply behave a different way. Okay, and so, so many times we're caught in this idea of discipleship is showing you how to behave, showing you how to behave like a Christian, right? And that's not effective discipleship because if I were to ask in the room how many of us are sinners and how many of us fail daily, we would all need to raise our hands, every one of us, including myself, including anybody else. Like, we're all in that boat, right? And so, we know about ourselves, if we're really honest, now we could lie to other people, but if we're really honest with ourselves, what we'll know is that our behavior isn't always God-honoring and God-glorifying. And especially in my heart, like in my heart, man, it just kind of, it, 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 it turns into behavior, right? And so I need God to do a work. So effective discipleship is not, not just going to simply ask you to behave better. If you're, not, if, you're not, if you're here today and you're not a, a follower of, cre- uh, of, of Christ, let me say this. Um, changing your external behavior to look more like Jesus is not what's being asked of you right now. You get that? Like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what we're not asking you to do here today is, you know what? You need to look more like Jesus. You need to behave more like Jesus. You need to take the things of Jesus and try to do those things. Because effective discipleship has everything to do with the heart. Like, God's Word transforms your heart. And when your heart is transformed, whatever your affections are, are aimed toward, it's going to come out in your behavior. And so that's what, that's what we're after. That's what Christ is after. Effective discipleship aims at your heart. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so my prayer, our prayer as a church is always that your treasure would be in Christ. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if Jesus is your treasure, this is going to profoundly modify the way you behave. You can talk to people. I, I had a, a, a great, um, long conversation with my brother yesterday. We was riding, we was going to see my parents. And I got to talk about how uh, Christ has changed everything about me. And like if you were to talk to some of our older friends that we meet today, that I would meet today, uh, they would attest to the fact that like, you know, Christ has done a work, right? Because, because he saved me and he's transforming my heart and it's, it's causing me to want to honor him and obey him and glorify him and worship him. And so my behavior is changed by what's happened in my heart. And so if Jesus is your treasure, it's going to profoundly change the way you use your resources. It's going to profoundly change the way you spend your money and consume. And so I want to, I want to pick up, we're going to read, um, we're going to read the, we're going to go through the rest of chapter four in Acts, and we're going to touch into chapter five in Acts today is where we're going. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Acts chapter four, I'm going to start in verse 32. Um, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter five, verse 11. That's where we're going to be today. So in verse 32... Picking up from last week. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So if we were like a church that, was, that passes the plate, this would be a good time to do that. <laughs> we take advantage of this opportunity. We're not going to do that, so you, you no, don't, don't sweat it. Um, but see, this is, not, this is not such a popular uh, part of the, the, of the Scriptures, right? Like, this is the part of the Scriptures that I don't want to talk about sometimes. Like, yeah, like if you try to lie to God, He can strike you down, and He'll take your family out with you. <laughs> like, this is not good evangelism, I guess, so to speak. But uh, nonetheless, it is the full counsel of God's Word, uh, and it has a word for us today. It ha- definitely has uh, some something for us today, and so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mainly kind of show you this. We live in such a polarized time in our society right now that everything is either or, either or. It's either this or it's either that. Uh, and, and and I see, and you can even look at this text right here and say, well, it's either this or it's either that, right? But what I hope today is to show you that it's not either this or either that. But there's actually in God's economy a third way. There's all God always does things a little bit different and messes up the way we think, uh, and that's good. And I and I love God that He does that. Uh, but but let me just say this: the kingdom economics doesn't mean shared ownership, right? It doesn't mean communal ownership. Uh, and and I want to talk a little bit about the verse 36 where it says. Um, Two, two different verses that we just read that, that I want to point to to kind of affirm what, that, that idea is verse 36 where it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by uh, the apostles Barnabas, um, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, here it is, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Right? And so it, he had property and it belonged to him. It was his. Um, and, and, and there was nothing wrong with that. And you see in chapter 5, starting in verse 3, but Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And here's where it says this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Like it belonged to you. It was yours. All of it was yours. We weren't asking for anything. And so he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So not only did what you have belong to you, but if you decide to sell it, the money's yours too. Like it's all yours. It's not a communal um, uh, uh, economy here where, where every, you know, what you have now belongs to us and it's, we all own it and share the ownership of it. It belongs to you. So I want to preface the remainder of our time that we go through this together with these verses that we understand that the kingdom economics it doesn't mean that what you own must be turned over to the church. That's not what, that's not in the, God's economy, that's not what we're saying here and that's not what Scripture is saying here. Um, that, that what you have is now to be brought to the church because you see it here. It's a, it's, it's a communal, uh, it's a communal economy. It's a shared ownership. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Barnabas maintained full ownership of his property. It was, it was his uh, and he maintained the ownership and he chose, he made a choice to express his generosity by selling it and giving the proceeds to the needs of his community. That's what he chose to do uh, with it. And Peter would rebuke Ananias by telling him that his property was his to do with what he wanted to, right? And even if he decided to sell it, it was, he was free to keep the money. Um, 
And so kingdom economics doesn't equate to shared ownership. It doesn't equate to Christian communism. It doesn't equate to Christian socialism, right? That's not, that's not what's going on here in God's economy. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, you need to know this, that the church beautifully reflects and should beautifully reflect diversity, right? It should, in the gospel, we should see diversity, all tribes, nations, tongues, backgrounds, cultures, contexts, uh, just status, life statuses. The church is to reflect beautifully all of that, right? It, it, the gospel brings about uh, diversity. And so the, it's good news for every race. It's good news for every culture. It's good news for every age. And it's good news for every socioeconomic status. The gospel is. The Bible is clear that sometimes, um, sometimes there are rich disciples who love Jesus and want to walk in faithfulness with their money. And the Bible would say that sometimes there are poor disciples who love Jesus and want to faithfully walk with God and, and honor Him with their money and be faithful. Um, and so it's important so that we, that we know this so that we don't hold up this, uh, this, this idea where here's our rich brothers and sisters, they're highly favored, and, and we set our poor brothers and sisters over here, and you're just kind of second class to these guys. Like that's, that's, in God's economy, that doesn't exist. In our economy, it exists, but not in God's economy. This is a different way. Um, and so the ch in the church, both the rich and poor, we all live under equal amounts of grace. Every single one of us. I love uh, thinking about this concept where at the foot of the cross, it's just a level playing field. We're all sinners in need of grace, right? And Christ is the one to give that to us, every single one of us who would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so if you're blessed with a, with a stable job, um, if you're blessed to have a steady income, and you would even consider yourself wealthy, which most of you in this room should raise your hand if I were to ask, do you consider yourself wealthy? By the world standards, you are extremely, sickeningly wealthy, right? That's in, 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 in the world's eyes. Not everyone, obviously, but I would say that uh, most of us in here are within the, the, the two percentile of the richest people on the planet. Most of us in here. If you drove a car here today, you're in the two percent most richest percentile of the global uh, economy. Um, so there you have it. Um, so if you would consider yourself wealthy, um, this is not a call for you to renounce all that you have. You, don't worry about that today. We're not going to pass the plate and say, empty your pockets. We're not going to say, bring us the deeds to your home or your land. That's not what's going to happen today. Um, but, but you have to continually ask the question. In God's economy, you have to continually ask this question, how do I steward my resources to the glory of God? How do I manage my resources so that God is made much of? Everything I have, how do I use it to the glory of God? And if you're, if you're not considering yourself well off, if you consider yourself probably in that percentile where you're struggling to make ends meet, right? That, that you're, you're trying to, to, to maintain steady employment. You're trying to provide for your family. Um, the gospel promises this, that you are co-heirs with the rest of us. You are co-heirs in Christ. And so we live under that same amount of grace. And, and you're equal with, with everyone who may or may not be more financially stable than you. And so I just kind of want to set the playing field and just let you know that you're on level ground here. Um, we're all on level ground here together. And so kingdom economics is not about this uh, communal ownership, this shared ownership. And, and... So if, if I mess some of you up, I'm going to go ahead and mess the rest of you up now. Uh, it's not about private ownership either. The kingdom economics, right? The kingdom of God and his economy, it's not about private ownership either. We live in this country where our economic system is capitalism, right? And that means aspire to have any career you want. Go after whatever you want to be. Make as much money as you can possibly make. Succeed at, at, at the, as, as best as you can. And a lot of times that translates into stepping on whoever you need to step on to get what you deserve. And that might not be your heart, but that's a lot of times how that plays out. You know, just, just step over someone else. Uh, for those who have less or less than you who, or who you would consider less fortunate, well, they need to just stop being lazy. They need to work. They need to go earn it like I do. Like that's what a capitalist economy can foster. I'm not saying that's what it fosters for all of you in this room, but I'm saying it has 
has a propensity to do that. And I see it every day. I work with it every single day. And it might not be out of an evil intention. You, you just might have been taught this from the, from the time you were born. Like, hey, go be all that you can be. You pass up those other jokers. You make something of yourself. Save up as much as you can. Like, and, and, and be what you want to be. And succeed to do all that you, you set your heart to do. And this economy, if I can be perfectly honest with you, and half of you might not come back next week, this economy is incompatible with the kingdom of God. It is incompatible with the kingdom of God. So the, the, what you're used to, the culture you're used to, the, the, the economy that, that you're used to, uh, it doesn't look like God's economy. I'm not saying it's all wicked and it's all evil. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of good that comes from it, right? I'm not going to just sit there and slam everything. But what I am going to say is when you try to stack it up against God's economy, there's some things that just seem to be incompatible. And I hope we get to see some of this today. Look with me um, in verse 32 again, back in chapter 4, verse 32. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. So you see conflict number one, right? We don't, we don't have this kind of attitude all the time. But they had everything in common. Um, and we talked about that when we were in Acts chapter 2. That doesn't mean that they believed the same things. It doesn't mean that they all had the same uh, mindsets and thoughts. It's just that everything that they had, they had in common. Like it, if you need it, it's yours. If I need it, it's mine. That's kind of how it worked. But it was out of generosity. It wasn't out of force. It wasn't out of you, someone making you do this. And it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of God's church being God's church. There was not a needy person among them. There shouldn't be a needy person among us in this room. It's not shared ownership. It's not Christian socialism. And it's not private ownership. It's not, this is mine. You go get yours. I worked for mine. I'm, I earned this. You go earn yours. You stop being lazy. Work hard like I did. And there's a whole lot of things I can say about that uh, just that we, we won't get into today. But there's this third reality that God's economy is all about stewardship. It's all about stewardship. It's all about how we care for what God has placed in our hands. This reality that Jesus is king and I am not. Jesus is king and you are not. And that's just the reality in this kingdom. He owns everything. He owns everything that I have. He owns everything that we have. He owns you. <laughs> In God's economy, He owns everything. If you've been entrusted with much, you've been entrusted with much that belongs to Jesus and not to you. If you've been entrusted with a little, you've been entrusted with a little that belongs to Jesus and not to you. That's how God's economy works. Kingdom stewardship should never, ever, ever be, what do I want to do with my money? It should never pose that question for us. Kingdom stewardship should always be, what does Jesus want me to do with his money? What does Jesus want me to do with his time that he's given me? What does Jesus want me to do with the resources? That's what kingdom stewardship looks like. And so how are you considering your finances today? And how are you considering your investments today? And how are you considering your possessions today? Do they have Jesus to do with any of it? Like, is, is he involved at all in this? Or do you just have your way of setting things up? This is how it's going to be. And I've got to make these moves. And I've got to do these things to get the most, to, to, to succeed at the most. Like, where are you with that today? In God's economy... It's all His. Every breath in your lungs belongs to Jesus. Every dime in your pocket belongs to Jesus. Everything you have in your home belongs to Jesus. And the question should always be, God, what do you want me to do with this? How can I bring you glory with what I have? I got this car. God, this is what you've given me. And it might be a hunk of junk, but I want to bring you glory with it. How can I use it? How can I use it? What can I do? Think about that. And while we talk specifically about money and possessions today, I, 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 want, I want to be sure that you understand that stewardship, kingdom stewardship, invades every part of your life. 
And so we're specifically talking about our finances and money today and, and our, our possessions because that's where we're at in Scripture. But when we talk about kingdom stewardship, we're talking about everything. So what's your plans tomorrow? What kind of time do you have on your hands tomorrow? What, what, what are you, you going to do tomorrow that's going to honor God in His economy, in His world, because He owns it all, right? And he may, he may very well be asking you to use what you have, your time, your resources, whatever, to show someone the love of Jesus. To, to make sure that there's no need among you. How many of you even give a rip if there's a need among you today? How many of you even care that there might be someone in this room who has a deep need today? Are you even paying attention enough to know? Are you even asking God the questions? God, show me how I can use this. Show me what I can do. So the disciple of Jesus literally, literally holds everything with open hands. Everything you have is for God to put in and God to take out. Everything. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There's a couple things you need to know, uh, uh, you need to know about here to grasp this stewardship in God's economy. Jesus, number one, first and foremost, is the resurrected Lord. Like Jesus is the resurrected King. Every sermon that has been highlighted in Acts so far, and those that's going to follow are going to go in this, going to have the same content, right? Jesus defeats the kingdom of sin, and Jesus defeats the kingdom of darkness on the cross, and he defeats death through his resurrection, and now he rules and reigns at his Father's right hand. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is king over everything, and that's first and foremost how we are going to be able to walk in this, this rhythm of kingdom stewardship, is to recognize first and foremost that he is king, man. He is the one ruler over this kingdom that we belong to, that we say we align our lives with. He's the king. And what our lives need to be about in order to be a good steward in this kingdom is that there is supremacy of Christ in every single thing. That He is supreme in everything. That He bought you with a price and that you are not your own. That messes up our way of thinking as American culture. That you were bought with a price, you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Glorify God with everything that you have, that everything that has been given to you. This reality should take our breath away. It should just take our breath away, man. This, this is incompatible with, with what we believe, or what I believe for sure. Like, it, this, this just kind of grates me. That... He owns everything. He, he is in control of everything. Stewardship is recognizing that, that everything belongs to Jesus, quite literally, and it is all grace. It's all grace. Every bit of it. It said in verse 33 there, and great grace was upon them all. This means that we actually live in this environment of, uh, of grace. We don't, we don't live in an environment of merit. I don't care where you learned your theology or where you come from, but we don't live in that kind of environment. This, this example of a, of a merit-based universe would be this idea of, of karma, right? Like karma is the anti-gospel. Let me just kind of put that out there, that, that it is this, this idea that the sum of your actions are going to determine your destiny. So if I do a lot of good stuff in the world, if I do a lot of, a lot of great things in the world, then my destiny, my future is going to be set, man. God's going to take care of me. That's karma. Trading good for good. And it's the anti-gospel. You don't know good. You have no clue about good. Even your best works are like filthy garments in the sight of God. That's what scripture would say. And so karma is the anti-gospel. And we live in that kind of environment where people would try to tell us this. But I'm here to tell you to change the trajectory of your life right now with the word of God to say we live in an environment of grace of grace, unmerited grace. We live in this environment where the Bible would say every good gift is from God. Everything that you even, if you even know what good is, when you consider that, it came from God. Every bit of it. Every bit of creation in this moment is being managed by God in His grace. He even caused the sun to rise this morning on those who hate Him. Everything is grace. Grace. 
Everything is good. And that's where we live today. And it's not just grace in creation, right? It's, it's, it's grace for salvation. It's grace for you to be saved. For those who are Christians today, you do realize that you didn't arrive there by your own efforts, right? You, you understand that if you call yourself a believer today, it was only by the grace of God that you arrived there. You didn't do anything on your own. You didn't say the right prayer. You didn't give the right amount. You didn't go do the right good deed so that God would say, oh, you're a good person. I'm going to save you. No, no. You're, it's all grace. Both in creation and, both for, and, and for salvation. It's grace and His mercy, not through any merit of your own. He looked at the work of Jesus. He saw what Jesus did on the cross, cross, and then He lavished His kindness on you and me for what Jesus did by His merit. And so stewardship is realizing that we, we live in this environment of both grace and creation and in salvation. And so we handle the things that have been given to us, like our time like our possessions, like our money, knowing that none of it belongs to us. It's all grace. If you're doing well today, it's by the grace of God. If you're struggling today, it's by the grace of God that you're here. It's all grace. And out of a grateful heart for this kindness that He has lavished on us and the grace that He's shown us, we hold all of it with open hands, not closed hands. And you're, you're likely, in your context, you've been taught to hold things like this. This is mine. I've earned this. I've worked hard for this. You want this, you go get it on your own. And that's not how God's economy works. God's economy is this. And it's everything that he puts in there is grace. And everything that he takes from here is grace. All of it. And so that's what's happening to this group of people in our passage. They're sharing with one another. They're honoring one another. They're caring for one another. And so as you steward your resources, your time, your money, as you, as you try to steward with kingdom-mindedness, think first and foremost about the glory and the beauty of God in Christ Jesus. Have that mind among you as you steward these things about the glory of Jesus. Giving and spending and consuming and taking and lending should all flow out of worship. All of it should flow out of worship. And so think about the glory and the beauty of God. And as you steward these resources, as you steward this time, as you steward this money, think about God's mission. Let it all flow from worship, right? Let everything that you have flow from a place of worship and let it flow into mission. Giving and spending should flow out of worship and it should flow toward mission, toward the kingdom of God and the, adva and the advancement of the gospel. Throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see the church, uh, church's resources uh, collected to further spread the gospel and to care for the, need, for, the, for the needs of the poor. Like that's what you see all throughout the book of Acts. That they're coming together and they're doing what they can. Oh, there's a need over there. Oh, the church is, uh, 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 they're experiencing famine. Let's, let's do what we can. And even out of their poverty, they are begging to give. Let me, give, let me be a part of what God's going to do with this. Because they realize it's all grace. And so as you steward your resources, your time, your money, let it flow out of worship. Let it flow toward God. God's mission, and I want you to think about the, Jesus' love for people as you steward these resources. Think about how Jesus loves people. That, that's it. His mission is to see that every tribe, nation, tongue, and language come to know Him and to worship Him as God. That's the mission of Jesus. And so isn't it amazing how shortly after this story would begin, shortly after the, the book of Acts would open, the church would start moving, Jesus would start meeting the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. Those who were around that day saw these people, and some of, some of them said, man, these guys are drunk. They, they don't know what they're doing. And others said, man, Jesus is king. And, and in, that, in that circle of people that day, there were needs. And then when, the, when chapter 2 would close out, it would say there was not a need among them. They were selling their possessions and giving to all as they had need. So think about those people that, that Jesus loves as you steward these resources. And think about how Jesus loves you. 
Think about, as you steward your resources, as you steward your time and your money, think about how Jesus loves you. He wants to meet your needs, and He wants to meet the needs of your family too, practically. So we're not taking a vow of poverty today, and that's not what Scripture's asking us to do today. So you think about Jesus' love for you. It's not a bad thing that you can take your wife out on a date. It's not a bad thing that you can take a vacation to spend some time with your kids. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a gift from God. That's God's grace. God is concerned with the posture of your heart as you steward what belongs to Him. That's what He's concerned with. Where's your heart? Where's your heart in these matters? So if your needs are being met and you withhold giving to the advancement of God's mission, He's concerned about that. He has great concern about where your heart's at if you have your needs met and your neighbor doesn't. Because if I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself, right, then if I don't have a need, my neighbor shouldn't have a need. So it speaks to something that's going on in the heart. And Paul would say each one must give. As you think about generosity and giving to advance the, the mission of God, letting worship kind of be the outpouring of that, it's, he would say each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And so I'm not telling you what you give or how you give, how much to give. Scripture's not doing that either. It says right there, you give as you have decided in your heart. And if, and if stinginess is what flows out, then that's what's in your heart, and that's what God's concerned about. He's not, he's not concerned about the, the material things that, that surface because of your heart. He's concerned about what's going on in your heart. It would say not, you, don't give under, you don't give reluctantly and you don't give under compulsion for God loves a cheerful, give, cheerful giver. And so... He doesn't, he doesn't want your obligation, and nor is your obligation welcome in the kingdom of God. But generosity and good stewardship is what's welcome and what's needed in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So I want to be real honest with you. Well, side note, that's a jacked up worship service. That's, that would disrupt the order here a little bit. But I love the way God does stuff. Um, but I want to be honest. There's never been a perfect church. And there never will be a perfect church on this side of heaven. I want you to get that. Because what I'm, what I'm primarily looking at are, are people who come from a, another church. Who have come from another church and decided to make this church your home. And for whatever reason or another, you're here, right? And it's only when Jesus has made all things new will there be no more hypocrisy. And it's only when Jesus has made all things new will there be no more gossip and no more selfishness and no more harsh words toward one another. No more preference. Only when Jesus has made all things new will that happen. The early church was pastored by the apostle Peter. It doesn't get much better than that. And you see what's going on in this church now, right? So there's not a perfect church. Even at, even at its best, even on its best day. 
It wasn't perfect. You look at the church, man, it was exploding with growth here, right? And you see the excitement going on here and the movement, the momentum that it's gaining, and yet Satan was still at work to deceive and to destroy. He's still there, man, and he's still, he's still working. And one takeaway from this is that, let me just encourage you, try to be a bit more gracious toward other churches, knowing that they're not perfect. Try to be a bit more gracious to this church, knowing that we're not perfect. Instead of being critical of the shortcomings of another church, or they do things this way and I just don't know about that, or you know, the, those people are this way, and there's, just, there's, oh, there's always going to be imperfections, and so can we be a little bit more gracious, knowing that on her best day, she still had some, some bobos. She still had some things wrong with her. And what we should be quick to realize is that if, if there was ever a perfect church, we would mess it up by trying to join it, right? Like, we all get this, right? Like, if we did find the perfect church, the best thing for that church is for us to stay away. Because I'm coming with some junk, man. Like, I'm coming in, and I'm coming with some junk. I'm coming in with my preferences. I'm coming in with my sin. coming in with my brokenness. And I'm going to mess some things up. And so the early church wasn't ideal. You see that here? Um, the, the churches in our community aren't ideal. The church that you came from to be here today is not ideal. Sulphur Community Church is not ideal. So don't be surprised if you have a bad encounter with someone here today. Don't be surprised if it wasn't just everything that you dreamed of it to be. Don't be surprised that we didn't get to meet your every single need. Um, because... There's no ideal church today this side of heaven. And so let it serve you, serve as a reminder to you, and it's a reminder to me that um, we're in this jacked up place in life and we're in constant need. Every one of us are in constant need of forgiveness. Every one of us are in constant need of God's grace. And so anxiety and fear and selfishness and brokenness, man, that's enough just for one person. Let alone pull a whole room of us together and let us mix all that together, right? Because every one of us has something. We come with something today, right? We come with, with some kind of baggage, some kind of junk today. And it's, just, it's enough just for you, just for one person to have to deal with that, right? But then you come into a room and you mix anxiety with preference and self-righteousness and judgment and unforgiveness. And you mix all that together. Man, you have, you've got a ticking time bomb. And so I just want to lay that before you, that we're not perfect. The early church was not perfect, and the church that's down the street from us is not perfect. So what brings us together is not that we have this common goal where we're just good people trying to get better. Like, that's not, that's not what brings us together. What brings us together is, and what makes all things in common, is that we all have a need for grace. Every single one of us. This free, good gift from God, we all need it. That's what brings us together. That's our common longing, and that's our common hope, is that we all come under this banner of grace and rescue. And so the issue in our passage with Ananias and Sapphira is not that they withheld a full amount and tried to cover it all up, right? That's not, the, that's not the main thing here, what's going on. The problem is, is that this couple was so tightly gripped with hypocrisy. They were so tightly gripped with self-preservation, and they were so tightly gripped with just wanting to be looked at as honorable and important, and they wanted a seat in a place where they would be looked at, and that, you understand where that, that was the same place that, that, that Adam and Eve struggled, right? They wanted to be God. They wanted to be honored as God. They wanted control of the situation. And that's where they saw, they looked at Barnabas. They looked at, at how, how he gave. And then they, they saw the influence that that might bring. And so they went after that. And they went after it with a hardened and deceitful heart. And that's the main issue going on here. God wasn't concerned with how much they gave or how much they withheld. God was concerned with their heart. And he, and he knew that this church was in so much need of grace. And so the, the big thing here is that they weren't just lying to people, right? Peter would say, you, you're not just lying to us in this room, man. You're lying to God. That's, that's a big deal. This couple witnessed this generosity of this guy. And, and, and instead of it kind of pointing them to Jesus, it pointed them to their real God. And that was their self. And, and what they were after was this respect and honor and esteem in the community. And that's, that's just out of a place of wickedness. That's, a, that's an evil place. 
to, to, to walk into a room and demand honor and to demand respect and to demand to be esteemed. And that's what they were after. And God's reaction to discipline, his reaction is discipline uh, for the sake of the church and her purity. Like that's what, that's what happens here. Right? God is making for himself a pure bride. And, and hypocrisy, there's no place in, there's, in the room for hypocrisy. And for those who are going to lie to God, this is how he deals with it. And verse 11, here is the response. And great fear, rightfully so, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And so with respect to fear for God, like what they said there, like, I think we stopped short. Um... When we only define fear of God as awe and amazement, like wonder. Like that is fear of God, but we would stop short if we didn't say that fear is also recognizing that, that God is not a man to be trifled with. Like there's a real fear that, that this, this God means business and that he's not to be taken flippantly. And he's not to be used, right? He's not to be used for self-gain. And, and there's a whole gospel built around that. Get God to get stuff. It's not, that's not the gospel. God is, is definitely love. And in his love, he's not to be taken lightly and he's not to be trampled on. He doesn't just get over your sin, you know? Well, we're all sinners and we just, you know, we all just, we're not going to judge one another and we're not going to call nothing out because, you know, we're all struggling with that. No, God takes your sin very, very seriously. And if you don't believe me, I want to point you to the cross. He takes your sin very, very seriously. And he's not just going to overlook it. He's not just going to say, oh, well, you messed up. Do better next time. He's going to point you to the cross. Like that's, that's where your sin's dealt with. That's where, that's where it comes to bear. And so he doesn't just get over it. Like, in fact, his righteousness and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness, he presents the ultimate display of love at the cross. Isn't it? It's just this, this deal here that we're, we, we have where we see all of God's love and all of his justice at one place. And it's at the cross. And so the fear of God is, yes, it's awe and it's amazement, right? And it's delight. But it's also worth and supremacy. So where are you at today? Like, where are you at with God today? How are you stewarding things? How are you honoring Him as God, as the supreme one over everything, over all of creation, both in this natural world and in the spiritual world? Where are you? Are you stingy? Is your heart holding on and you, you think you have control over everything and are your hands closed? Or are you being a good steward of what belongs to God? And are you allowing Him to do what He wants with what He's entrusted to you to steward in this little blip of, of time that you're here on earth to further the kingdom? Worship Him. Allow that to flow out of you into mission so that the people that Jesus loved, including you, can experience the presence of God in this place. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to enter into a time of communion together. And I'll just ask Hunter if you could come up for, for that. Um, so would you pray? Father, we, we come to you today. And um, Father, um, thank you for God, your word, and, 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 and all of the goodness that it brings and all of the conviction that it brings. But uh, God, even the hard parts where... Um, Father, we see a, a situation here where your holiness is priority and the holiness of your church is priority. So, Father, in, in, our, in our time together and in this word together, I pray, Father, that your word has, um, has been effective. And, God, I would ask forgiveness now if... I spoke anything outside of what you wanted to be said here today. And God, if there was anything that was spoken here today that was not from your heart and was not from your mouth, and Father, I would pray that you would erase that from the memory of us and just only give us your word, only give us your truth. We need it so desperately because we believe so many lies. We believe so many... Um, 
false gospels and false realities in this world. And so, Father, thank you for this idea where it's not an either or, where we're on one side or the other. But, God, everything has been given to us by you to steward. You have not given us ownership over anything. You've only given us stewardship over the things that you would allow us to carry in this time in our lives. And so I would pray, Father, that uh, we are all uh, considering in this very moment how we're going to steward what you've given us to the glory of your name, for the, for the good of this neighborhood and, and to the nations so that we could be a part of this story, we could be a part of this mission that you've given us that's continuing to move and continuing to advance. Father, thank you when there is opposition from outside and from within. Let it be a reminder of the grace that we're so desperately in need of. Let it be a reminder of the repentance that we're having to continually walk in. And let it lead us to you. Let it point us to your heart and to your forgiveness, Father, because we need that so much. love you and we pray that you would especially be with us in these next few minutes Father as we um, consider uh, unity as we consider brokenness and forgiveness and repentance and redemption and restoration and renewal um, Father would you would your presence be very very present in, in these moments we love you and we thank you for Christ and we ask these things in his name Amen so we're going to enter into a time of communion um, and the way this works here is we like to take a little bit of time to um, kind of just reflect on the meaning of communion, uh, what, what it's about, uh, not just kind of to take it at, at face value, but to really consider um, what's going to go on in this moment and how we're supposed to respond in this moment. Um, communion is uh, this term. Uh, it, it literally means to share in or to take part in. Um, so to observe communion is to, to share the bread and it's to, to share the cup as a means of symbolizing um, our inclusion into this kingdom, both into the death of Jesus and, and, and the accomplishment of his sacrifice uh, that we're included in this. And this meal was instituted um, by Jesus during his last meal with his, with his disciples before he was going to be arrested and tried and eventually executed. And pick up a verse in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 14 said, When the hour came, he reclined at table, speaking to Jesus and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. And so this meal was the Jewish Passover. That's what they were celebrating at that last supper before Jesus was to be arrested and executed. And this was an annual reminder to the Jewish community uh, of what God had, had done for them, of his deliverance that he provided for them out of Egypt so many years ago. And he set it as a, a, as a reminder for them every single year. I want you to celebrate the moment that I rescued you out of Egypt. And all of your sinfulness and wherever you were at, I rescued you. I chose you as my people. And so that's what we're remembering. The food that was eaten at this meal that, that, they, that was instituted that night, that, that, that God was going to make the final rescue, the final moment, that meal that was, that was, that was going to be celebrated, it included bread and it included wine and it became a symbol of, of that moment and to recall those moments that had taken place that night. And it was during this meal that Jesus was having with his disciples, with his closest friends, where he took the bread and he took the wine and he just redefined the whole thing. He said, all of the, the sim symbolism that you've been, been rehearsing year after year after year, I'm here to tell you that now I'm the bread. And the blood that's going to be poured out, that's my blood. Like That's what that symbolizes now. He gave it new meaning and he said that these were symbols of his body. These were symbols of his blood that would soon be broken. Soon would be, the blood would be poured out as he would give his life on the cross. 
And this time, Jesus was saying, I am the greater exodus. I'm the, I'm the greater deliverance. I'm the greater rescue. And it's going to be final. And so he said to his disciples that they were to continue in this. In his example of that, he gave them that night of sharing the bread and sharing the cup. He said, as you meet, I want you, to, I want you to remember this and I want this to become a fixture in your community for two reasons. I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what I did. I want you to remember all that I accomplished, all the things that I said, all the things that I accomplished. And for the other reason, I want you to remember that I'm coming back. I look forward to, to, to my return. And so that's why we celebrate this. We remember everything that Christ has done. And we remember that we are over this banner of grace until Christ returns. And that's why we celebrate this moment. And so when we take part in communion, we're continuing something that these early followers that we, we just read about in Scripture that we're seeing in the book of Acts, we're continuing this same thing that they, that they, they started doing in the early church that Jesus instituted with them in the upper room. And so let me just say this. The communion table, uh, the, the, this is a place where the broken body of Jesus is reflected. Not only on the table, okay? But for those of us who would gather around the table, it's a reflection of Jesus' body. Broken with all of our scars and all of our mess, but under complete and utter grace. And so this moment is to remind us of the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness and the redemption and the rescue. So it's a time of renewal, to renew our relationship to God first, and then to renew our relationship with one another. It's this priority of vertical relationship with God that flows out of worship into unity and peace with one another and unbroken fellowship. And so by this renewal process, we're expressing our unity with Jesus. That's what's going on. So a few, a few points that are important. Uh, uh, who in this room can participate? Who, who is just, in, is this table open? Or is this, uh, just maybe to go over a few of those things, we do share an open communion here. Which means... Um, you don't have to be a committed, uh, committed member of, of Sulphur Community Church to, to participate today with us. But you do have to be a member of the Capital C Church, God's global church. You have to be part of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, what are you renewing? What are you reflecting on, right? And so this is a moment of, of remembering grace, of remembering mercy and redemption individually. And so we share an, an open table. And so if you're here today and, and you follow Jesus, regardless of this is your first time here or you've been coming here forever, uh, you're welcome to participate with us. Parents, um, if there are little ones still in the room, I don't know. Um, if your little ones haven't fully comprehended uh, the gospel, haven't fully embraced um, the gospel for themselves, uh, this is a really, really unique opportunity to share the gospel with them, share what all of this means. And so rather than them participate with you, I would ask that you take this time to share the gospel with your little ones. We'd love to have an opportunity to share the gospel with your little ones. And so if that's the case... Um, that would be the only other uh, rule of participation that we would lay out. Um, the Bible would explain that the taking of the bread and the taking of the cup, uh, it shouldn't be taken lightly. Uh, it shouldn't be taken flippantly. Uh, and the Bible would even ask that everyone examine themselves. And what I mean when I say examine yourself, I'm meaning like honestly interrogate your heart. <laughs> honestly ask the hard questions in your life. Examine yourself before you take part. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I hope today's scripture would show you the seriousness of how God takes unity and, and, and how, he do, how he intends to, to make a pure bride for himself. And so Paul would say here, if you just kind of take this without really considering anything, without examining where you're at individually, uh, then you're drinking judgment on yourself. And so it, it, it has grave importance. 
he would say, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would, know, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's own Son sacrificed His life in our place to pay the price for our sin and to bring us into a relationship with God. His own Son has done that. And to continue in a deliberate sin, to continue just walking in the sin that you have, if you've honestly asked yourself questions, if that's something you're just kind of, I'm holding on to this, I'm not going to let this part of me go, to continue in that sin is to sin against this work of Jesus. He's rescued you from that. And that's the whole point. That's what we remember today. That the thing that grips us the most, Jesus has rescued us from this. And so we're also called to live in right relationship with each other. And that's a very important thing for us here at our church. The judgment of, of Paul that he speaks of here, it's disunity among one another. That's what was going on in this church. When he's writing to this church, he's like, there's, there's a lot of broken fellowship among you. And as you partake of the Lord, like you're exercising the unity of the Lord while being completely broken in fellowship with one another. And so he's, he's being very serious about this, and he's calling out this broken fellowship. And he's saying, this is not to be taken lightly. And this moment, this time that we set aside, it's given to us as a gift from God to reconcile us and to restore any disunity among one another. That's what it's for. And so there's going to be times, today might be that time for you, that it's not best for you to participate specifically because you're at odds with someone. That there's a broken fellowship, that there's disunity among you and another brother or another sister. May or may not be in this room. And so it would probably be best that you do some business with God instead of coming to the table today. That's what, that's what the table is given to us for. So that might need to happen in this place. It might need to happen this morning. Um, if there's someone across the room that you're at odds with, then I exhort you to take this time to work that out, to work out forgiveness, to work out unity and restoration. That's what this time is for. If that person is not in this room, if that person is not here today, then step outside and make a phone call. Step outside and send a text message and say, hey, we need to grab lunch. We got some things to work out. That's what this moment is for. That's what it's about. And so I want you to prioritize unity over taking communion today. Prioritize unity first with God. If you have broken fellowship with God, you deal with that. If you have broken fellowship with someone else, you deal with that. And you prioritize that over this table today. So there's no pressure then to either take or not to take communion. The key issue is honesty before God and genuine restoration among one another. And so what I want to do now in this time is I just want to ask everybody to kind of take your own time to do a self-examination. Um, and so that might be for you just to pray in your seat and to just be still in your seat. You might need to go another place in this building to do that. Uh, but would you just kind of take some time over these next few minutes to do a self-examination? And if, and if it's this time that you need restoration with God or with someone, then let's do that at this time. So would you bow your heads? Would you get in a place if you need to get in a place where examination can happen and you just spend some time with you and Jesus.